Now, as Sachinka mentioned, uh, the topic of my talk is the analogy between states and international organizations. And that is indeed <laughs> the subject of a forthcoming monograph. I debated whether I should present on some work in progress rather than this, but because I don't really consider this topic as a closed project, I thought I would really appreciate to have your thoughts and views on what I have done so far. Now, the underlying question of the project that led to this book is <clears throat> the extent to which IOs, international organizations, are bound by general international law, which I am uh, a term that I'm using pretty much in the same way in which the International Court of Justice has been using it recently, just to describe those rules that apply across the board to states, custom, including parental norms, and uh, general principles of law. Now, the textbook position on whether IOs are bound by international law, or general international law in particular, tends to be in the affirmative. Many authors just presume, just assert, that custom applies to international organizations, while offering relatively little reflection on this. And the same assumption can be discerned in the work of the International Law Commission on International Organizations. Those of you who have worked in the field of international organizations will know well that the ILC has carried out two major codification projects on international organizations. The first one concerned the law of, the, of treaties and culminated with the adoption by a conference of states of the 1986 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties involving IOs. The second one concerns the law of international responsibility and has been completed in 2011 with the adoption of the Articles on the Responsibility of International Organizations for Internationally Wrongful Acts. In both of the projects, for the most part, what the IOC did was to extend rules that had been adopted, originally having states in mind, to international organizations. The 86 Convention looks pretty much like the 1969 Vienna Convention of Law of Treaties between states. And even the articles on the responsibility of IOs bear a strong resemblance with the 2001 articles on state responsibility. Basically what the ILC was doing was extending to international organizations customary rules that apply to states. But the reasoning that the Commission offered for that was highly cryptic. In the project on treaties, for example, the Commission does not really state its methodology very clearly, but you see its special rapporteur, Paul Hauter in particular, going on about the issue and explaining that there is a principle of consensualism that applies to all treaties, no matter which entities conclude them. And as a result, you can extend the rules that apply to states, to international organizations. With the project on responsibility, the reasoning was even less substantive. The commission says that it does not assume 
that IOs and states are to be governed by the same rules, but rather each and every rule that applies to IOs has to stand on its own feet. That's what, it's, that's what the Commission says, but it's not pretty much what the Commission does, because if you take a look at the commentaries to the ARIO, what you see is that the Commission is often saying that because there are no reasons to distinguish between IOs and states, the same rule that applies to states can also apply to IOs. So we have here evidence of this intuition, this approach of extending custom change organizations in the work of the IOC, but very little attempt to speak about the basis <coughs> on which custom can be applied to international organizations. Now, when one think about the basis on which custom can apply to international organizations, there are at least two potential approaches or explanations that come to mind. The first one is to think that the structural norm of international law that makes custom applicable to states if I were to borrow a phrase from a very, very prominent jurist coming from this university, we could call that the rule of recognition of international law. Now, in addition to states, includes international organizations. As if you could read into the rule of recognition of international law that its scope, ratione personae, has been enlarged. The second way in which one can try to discuss and explain uh, the applicability of custom to international organizations is to take the opposite stance, to assume that custom in principle, or the customary rules of states in principle only apply to states and require independent proof of state practice and opinion whenever you are claiming that a customary rule applies to international organizations. The problem with the first approach, basically postulating that the rule of recognition is a little bit more inclusive, is that it can be very difficult to show how that rule of recognition that makes custom binding on states has been enlarged so as to comprise church organizations. How do we show that? How do we prove that? And states are surely giving no signals that that should be necessarily the case. The problem with the second approach is that it may be very difficult to prove that particular rules on custom for international organizations exist. If you take the RU as an example, the ILC had a lot of trouble to find particular practice or precedent backing up many of the rules that it was proposing. And more than that, if we adopt approach number two and require independent proof of state practice of euros for customary rules on international organizations, the upshot is that somehow states are allowed to create certain entities with separate legal personality that are not bound by the customary rules that apply to states in the first place. And that is a bit of a worrisome normative implication. Now, in my own work, I have been trying to take a different approach to those two alternatives that I don't find completely helpful. 
instead of making strong assumptions about what is the content of the rule of recognition in international law, as it were, I treat the question of the applicability of general international law to international organizations as a situation of uncertainty. In the beginning, there were states, and the customary rules of international law were made by states, for states, having states in mind. Suddenly, we have new entities in the scene, and the question emerges of what rules we apply to them. Suddenly, we see lots of gaps in the international legal system, or what we may, might describe as a crater, because it's a whole range of situations for which the law doesn't seem to be that so clear anymore. And when it comes to dealing with gaps in the law, legal theorists have been exploring how systemic reasoning can help us tackle hard cases and fill gaps as they emerge. And that is what I'm trying to look at. Can an analogy between states and international organizations based on systemic considerations give us a path to explore the elusive legal position that they occupy in the international legal system at the moment? Can we find solutions, tentative, provisional solutions, but yet solutions for the, pro for the problem by looking at systemic reasoning? And that big question leads me to broke two issues. The first one has to do with the extent to which analogy can be used to fill gaps in international law. What is the role and the value of analogical reasoning when it comes to tackling hard cases. That leads me to go back to jurisprudential accounts of legal reasoning, not only in domestic law, but also in international law, taking the particularities of international law into consideration as well. That is a question that I'm not planning to explore too much in the talk, but I definitely am curious to hear what kind of thoughts you have on this as well. But the second question, which is more specific, is even if reasoning by analogy has a role to play here, has a value, is a methodology that we could in principle accept as worthy of applying in situations of uncertainty, does that particular analogy, the analogy between states and international organizations, work? Can international organizations be meaningfully compared with states? There are, of course, very many obvious differences between states and IOs. States are personifications of full-fledged political communities. IOs are personifications of bureaucracies that are set up, uh, set, set up to pursue all kinds of goals. But is a comparison between the two categories plausible for the specific purposes of identifying rules that apply to international organizations on the international plane? 
Now, to tackle that question, there are at least three things that have to be really thought about. The first one is, of course, what is the case for an analogy between international organizations and states? What are the foundations for us to be able to make this comparison? Objections to the analogy have to also be considered. Are there any reasons why we should reject <coughs> that analogy and rather distinguish between IOs and international organizations for the purposes of applying rules on the international plane? And thirdly, even if the analogy works, at least to an extent, what are its limits? What kind of answers does it provide and what kind of answers doesn't it provide? From those questions, the one that I'm more interested in exploring today is the case for an analogy. So the basic assumptions that would underlie an analogy between states and church organizations and underpin an attempt to explain the application of custom to organizations on the basis of systemic reasoning. The case for an analogy has to be built in two steps. Analogies are judgments based on a notion of relevant similarity. It is because two situations share a relevant similarity that you are entitled to extend the rules that apply to one situation to the other. So, of course, for international organizations and states to be analogous for certain purposes, they must share such a relevant similarity. But in the case of states and international organizations, there is a condition that is preliminary to that one. For you to be able to meaningfully compare states and international organizations, you must be able to say that international organizations constitute a category of international legal subjects. Now, many of you may be thinking, what is it talking about? Of course, international organizations constitute a category of international legal subjects. That's what we find whenever we open the first page of the first chapter on church organizations in a textbook. The problem is that even mainstream commentary, there is a lot of ambivalence about what church organizations actually are from a legal point of view. Church organizations are described as subjects of international law, but at the same time, Lots of commentators will tell us that there isn't a principle of equality for international organizations bringing them into the same category as we have for states with sovereign equality. That international organizations are very different from each other. They are governed by the principle of a speciality. Every IO is unique. And if by that commentators mean that any international organization is unique from the perspective of general international law, there is no way we can meaningfully compare states as a category with international organizations as a category. I suspect that the ambivalence that we see in academic commentary when it comes to explaining what international organizations are 
whether they are a category of subjects or whether they are truly each completely unique, comes from an ambivalence as to two ways in which you can conceptualize institutional organizations or conceptualize their status under international law. And authors sometimes move from one to the other without much rigor. And we end up with a bit of a confusing picture. The first potential way of conceptualizing church organizations in international law is viewing them as mere treaty transactions. We know well, this is not controversial or disputed, that IOs are created through treaties or other agreements under international law. If we say that international organizations exist, are established on the basis of the principle pacta sum servanda, as just an exercise of the creative power of treaties, this gives us one snapshot of what international organizations are from the point of view of general international law. International organizations are truly unique, just as treaties are truly unique when you look at them from the perspective of general international law. The personality of international organizations is subjective in that it can only exist vis-a-vis -vis the states that have established those organizations. Third parties are perfectly free to ignore the rights and obligations of international organizations unless, and that is a fiction that authors that tend to see them as not, no more than treaty transactions use, third parties recognize the organization. But surely, if you can make international organizations, the phenomenon of IOs, fit within the classic framework of the law of treaties, that is what you have. And comparing them with sta states is a little bit silly. You cannot compare treaty transactions with legal subjects proper. Those are, at best, relative legal subjects, legal entities that exist only for their members. The other potential explanation for the status of international organizations under international law <coughs> is to see them as subjects of international law proper. That's what is captured by the idea that we see the international courts using the reparation for injuries advisory opinion of an objective legal personality. In the reparation case, the court said that 50 states, there representing the vast majority of states in the international community, had the power in accordance with international law to create an entity with objective legal personality and not recognized by them alone. <coughs> So that was a nod to the assumption that maybe international law has evolved so that now states have the right to set up certain corporate entities through which they act. Entities that then become truly <coughs> legal and institutional realities vis-a-vis -vis the outside world. So 
And then, of course, if you conceptualize international organizations like that, if you think that international law allows states to come together, establish organizations that exist vis-a-vis -vis the outside world, legally speaking, and then pursue whatever goals they want, acting collectively through those beasts, then you can meaningfully compare states and international organizations in the, in the sense that they at least constitute two categories of legal subjects under international law. Now, the question is which of the two conceptualizations we choose. In the first decades, uh, or, or the first three or four decades following the Second World War, the temptation with many scholars was to look at international organizations as treaty transactions in the end. And we see that assumption pretty much buried in the work of the ILC on treaties. The ILC say we are not expressing a view on the status of international organizations under international law. But if you look at the debates and what the special rapporteur in particular was saying, the ILC was not ready to postulate that somehow now there is some sort of structural change in the fabric of the international legal system that allows for subjects in addition to states. Paul Hotel says very expl explicitly and expressly, international organizations are a creature of pacta sunt servanda. That's what they are. More recent commentary has been moving away from that presumption that international law has to have certain fixed structures and cannot evolve, cannot modify, cannot admit of what we might call an implicit rule of incorporation for international organizations. The ILC, when it was codifying the law on the responsibility of IOs, comes more or less to that position and adopts the assumption here that IOs are entities with objective legal personality, the existence of which is a matter of fact, which is not necessarily a very sophisticated way of putting it, but still takes a position. Now, if we accept that perhaps a better rationalization of current practice is to conceptualize international organizations as subjects of international law forming a category that can be meaningfully compared with states, the question that emerges is, okay, so what do they have in common that might justify extending rules from one category to the other? What might be the relevant similarity that among all the differences that they share as well helps us jump the gun? Some commentators are tempted to jump onto the notion of international legal personality. And it's commonplace to treat international legal personality as the basic concept surrounding the status of international organizations. The problem with the concept of international legal personality is that if you take a little bit of a theoretical approach to it, a jurisprudential approach to it, it is a merely formal concept. It is an empty shell 
To call something a subject of law means to say that that entity is a focal point for the application of rights and obligations and capacities under the legal system. But that doesn't tell us anything about what rights, obligations and capacities that entity has. So we sometimes, or some people sometimes, call individuals subjects of international law. And that can be accurate if you accept that human rights law and international criminal law, for example, apply directly to individuals. But calling them subjects of international law does not mean that they are bound by the rules of the law of treaties, that they have the capacity to make treaties, or that the rules of state responsibility should apply to them. So international legal personality is a little bit of a false start for the discussion. But there is one idea that when you look into particular discussions of the international legal personality of IO's leaps at us, which I find a bit more promising. That's the idea that international organizations, those that have separate legal personality, enjoy legal autonomy. What would be that legal autonomy? Here the capacity to express a volonté distinct, a different will from that of its member states individually. Of course, states are sitting in political organs of international organizations and pulling the strings, but a decision that is adopted by a political organ of the international organization is not, formally speaking, the decision of a member state. It is rather a collective decision that is attributed to the organization directly. <coughs> and this legal autonomy is compounded by what Finn Seierstedt, who is a famous or infamous <coughs> scholar on church organizations, has called organic jurisdiction. The idea that when church organizations operate upon an international plane, to use the phrase, from the ICJ in the reparation case, they are not subject to the domestic jurisdiction of any other members. No member state can apply their domestic law on international organizations. Rather, in a very formal sense, they are just as self-governing on the international plane as states are. That legal autonomy to operate on the international plane, no matter what they are doing on the international plane, they may be doing a lot, they may be doing very little, can be described as a relevant similarity between states and international organizations, justifying extending rules from one category to the other. So to the extent that international organizations and states are both operating on the international plane in their own name, in their own right, without being subject to the domestic jurisdiction or the jurisdiction of any other entity, <coughs> they seem comparable and they should be bound by the same rules. But the argument cannot stop there because whenever one draws an analogy and one selects what might be a relevant similarity from lots of similarities or differences that you can find between the 
objects you are comparing. One has also to provide a normative explanation of why that characteristic, that relevant similarity has been selected. That's what Scott Brewer, who is a law professor but a philosopher as well at Harvard, has called an analogy-warranting rationale. You need to provide a rationale for selecting that particular element as the one that is relevant for comparison, that is the basis for extending a rule from a situation to the other. And the normative underpinning for the analogy, the analogy war warranty rationale justifying extending rules from states to social organizations, might <coughs> be formulated as follows. If states can do collectively what they can do individually, so they get this right under international law to establish separate entities for collective action, that entity must also be subjected to the same general rules, the same default rules that would apply to the members individually. Otherwise, when we think about the right that states have to establish international organizations, we would have to come to the conclusion that somehow international law has envisaged for states the right to not only outsource their rights and obligations, their activities, their cooperation, but also in doing so to shield themselves from the application of the general rules that apply to all states when they act individually. That would be, obviously, a very problematic assumption to make. Could this ever fit with the logic of sovereign equality, that a group of states can create an entity, have that entity unleashed into the world, but that entity not bound by the general rules in the system under which it was created? That would be an extraordinary solution. So if states can create legally autonomous entities that operate on the international plane, those entities will, at the very least, to the extent that they act on the international plane, be bound by the same rules as states. So that would be the basic case for an analogy between states and international organizations. But that case has to be further probed. It has to be, in a way, weighed against reasons why we might distinguish between international organizations, and also it has to be correctly contextualized. Part of the work has to do with looking at objections that can be made to the analogy between states and international organizations. For one, there can be some structural differences between states and international organizations that can affect the applicability of general rules of custom and general principles to organizations. The fact that they don't have a territory, the fact that they don't have a population. To an extent, the fact that it has a different institutional architecture from that of the state. Secondly, 
Any argument for an analogy between states and international organizations based on this notion that both are legally autonomous entities operating on the international plane has to deal with the objection of speciality. Whether the fact that international organizations have limited competencies under their constituent uh, treaties, as opposed to states, which are sometimes a bit misleadingly described as bearers of the totality of international rights and obligations, whether that affects the application of custom to international organizations. My own position is that it is very important at all times to distinguish between the international plane and the rules and questions that arise over there, and the institutional plane, when you look into what's happening between members and organizations under the constituent instruments of the organization. And that all those notions of organizations as special subjects of international law tend to belong to the internal institutional plane and should not necessarily affect the rules that apply to international organizations to the extent that they act on the international plane. It is true that many international organizations will have very few powers to exercise on the international plane. But if they have those powers, then they should be subject to the same rules of the other entities that carry out similar action. That with a, I, I see one exception for the principle, uh, for the idea that international organizations are special, which has to do with lawmaking. Even though international organizations are bound by custom, it does not mean that they necessarily can contribute to the formation of customary international law, at least in a way that adds to what is the expressed or collective bearing of the practice and opinion jurors of their members. And then, of course, one has to look into the layered character of international organizations and what that means in terms of us applying rules such as the rule of relative effects of treaties, pacta tersi, to international organizations, or the principle of independent responsibility that each subject of law is liable only for their own acts. And my argument is that the IOC, having proposed some solutions that, for example, mean that IOs have limit, um, that, that states have limited liability when it comes to the actions of IOs goes far beyond what an analogy between states and social organizations would allow. And then finally, any study of the analogy between states and social organizations has to take into consideration limits of that idea. And I see two main limits to the idea. The first one is a limit, uh, is a limit of scope. The analogy can provide solutions for the application of international rules on the international plane. But there is no reason why the analogy would justify applying general international law in the on the institutional plane between organizations and members under the rules of the organization. As a personified entity, <coughs> The, the rules of the organization, the internal law of IOs, will have a relative degree of autonomy from general international law. And it will have the capacity to limit, to a great extent, which rules of general international law are 
valid over there, can be applied. So the analogy completely breaks down at the institutional level when you look what's happening inside institutional organizations. It only provides solutions for what happens when IOs are acting vis-a-vis -vis the outside world or vis-a-vis -vis its members, but on the international plane. A second limit has to do with the provisional character of solutions that we get from systemic reasoning. Those are always makeshift, provisional solutions that we get for problems. It doesn't mean that the law that applies to IOs should always be similar to the law that applies to states, because solutions that are derived by analogy are subject to the normative contestation of the main stakeholders in the system. States, organizations themselves, courts and tribunals, the academic profession, and that can give rise to departures from the analogy. We can have maybe a burgeoning system of customary rules that have been devised for IOs in particular, which will dif differ, which will diverge from the customary system that applies to states. And I think that that is a concession that has to be made. How this is more of a first step to deal with a situation of uncertainty <coughs> rather than a finishing line. This is how the system has to look like forever and ever. That was, in a nutshell, a very general and I hope not too superficial description of an idea that is a bit more carefully discussed uh, in the monograph itself. And I thank you very much for your patience in listening to me for almost 40 minutes. Thank you.